One of my favorite characters in all of the Old Testament is one of the characters that you're probably most familiar with if you've ever at any point been in Sunday school. And that is the, the story of a man named Samson. Uh, in Judges chapter 13, the story of Samson opens that the children of Israel again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, a little context for where we're at in the greater narrative of the Bible. From Leviticus, the children of Israel will get to the land of promise. They'll send spies into the land. Those spies will come out with a pretty terrible report. Two of the men are like, victory is ours, the Lord will lead us. The rest of them, oh, ye of little faith. They cower in fear. And as a result of their failure to enter the land that God had promised to give to them, the children of Israel, <clears throat> this nation descending from Israel, Jacob, they wander the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation dies off. And again, they come back to the land <clears throat> to enter. They go across the Jordan River. And they subdue it. Jericho, Ai. They divide up the land. They begin to settle. Develop families. They've made it to the land of promise. They've settled in the land of promise. They are in the land that God had given them. He had been faithful to provide for them. But over this period of about 400 or so years, before you get into the, the, the times of the prophets and later the kings, these 400 years, a cycle emerges. Really a terrible one, ultimately. See, the children of Israel would, would go through spurts of faithfulness. Where, I mean, they're connected to the Lord. The Lord's connected to them. The things of the Lord are important to them. The nation is prosperous. There's peace. God is working. The people are obedient. They would be in a great place. But then, for all kinds of reasons, the people would, would begin to leave their relationship with God. They would get enticed by some of the nations around, some of the pagan hedonistic practices. They would begin to rebel against the Lord. And God would be patient with their rebellion, would be patient with their disobedience, but God's patience only lasts for so long because He also loves us. And He's not going to allow His people to continue in a wayward of destruction without an intervention. And so the intervention would be that God would raise up one of these people groups, in this case, the Philistines, to kind of kick their butts. They would be judged. There would be a judgment. And it would be through that judgment that the people uh, would suffer, there would be difficulty, and they would come ultimately to a renewed awareness of why they were where they were. Man, it was so much better when we, when we were walking with the Lord, when we were obedient to the Lord. This is terrible. How did we get here? And they'll see this track of disobedience and God's judgment. Man, we've messed up. That's why we are where we are. And there would be this national repentance where the people would, would, 
would see the error of their ways, would recognize the judgment, would see these things were happening because of their own decisions, and they would cry out to the Lord. Because, hey, being under the Philistines' thumbs, or the Moabites, the Amorites, all these other parasites, would be difficult. So they cry out to God, and God would raise up a deliverer. And then what would happen is they would uh, fight back. This deliverer would, would liberate them. There would be a national awakening, repentance, good things. And they would return back to a period of peace where they're back in their relationship with the Lord. Things are good. But over time, what would happen? Well, they would start looking again at the nations. And this cycle happens over and over, generation after generation. 400 years, this cycle over and over and over again. Now, it's in the middle of all of this. We're told in the first verse that the children of Israel, again, meaning this is not the first time, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They rebelled. They were being disobedient, so the Lord delivered them. It wasn't that the Philistines conquered them. God handed them over. This was a judgment for 40 years. Now, we're told, there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites. These were the descendants of Dan, who was a son of Jacob, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren. They had no children. And we're told that the angel of the Lord, that the presence of God, appeared to the woman, Manoah's wife, and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren, have borne no children, but you shall conceive. And bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink or, or eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive, you shall bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God. This is a, a unique designation. He was be set aside for a purpose. He would be unique, distinct. He shall be a Nazarite to God. From the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And so we have Manoah and his wife. We don't know a lot about them. She's barren, but God is stepping into time and space and is going to provide a deliverer through this woman that was barren. This son should be a Nazarite, distinct, different, set aside. He should be holy. But he's going to be the man, the one that God would use to deliver Israel out from their judgment. If you jump all the way to verse 24, and there's a lot of this story that's very cool, very interesting. You can read it on your own. For our purposes, we're going to skip around a bit. But verse 24, kind of in summary, we're told that the woman then bears a son, as the Lord had promised, and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him, Abinea Dan, between Zorah and Eshtal. You might want to underline that, that line, that, that, that statement, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. We'll, we'll get back to that. Matter of fact, as we look at the life and story of Samson, you're going to see that interesting phrase emerge often. Samson, he grows, strengthens. God's hand is on his life. He ends up, though, in the process of time, becoming smitten with a woman of the Philistines, which was, 
in some ways prohibited by God because she was a Gentile. In fact, his parents protest. And yet the Lord is, is, is pulling the strings. This is all part of God's plan. In chapter 14, verse 5, we're told that Samson, he goes down to the vineyards of Timnah. And to his surprise, as he's on his way, a young lion came roaring against him. This is not a full-grown lion, a young lion, a lion nonetheless. And we're told, again, you might want to underline it, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Samson, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, which I have no idea how you tear apart a young goat, but we'll just leave that there, though he had nothing in his hand. And so as Samson's making his way to the vineyards of Timnah to, to call for the hand of this Philistine woman that he's in love with, there's this lion, this obstacle, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And in this moment, mano y mano, he takes the lion and he tears the lion apart. He kills the lion with his bare hands. Now he gets to Timnah and he's marrying this woman. There's this grand celebration. If you jump to verse 12, Samson starts to have fun with some of the Philistines at the celebration. We're told during the festivities that Samson says to these Philistine men, he says, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain the riddle to me within the seven days of this wedding feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. So they're having a bit of a wager. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. So we've got a deal hatch. I'm going to give you a riddle. You can answer the riddle, well, now I owe you some garments. On the flip side, if you can't, well, you owe me some garments. So we've got this thing, a little bit of a, of a, of a party game, so to speak. So they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So Samson said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now, they don't get the riddle. They're struggling to figure out what exactly Samson... They don't want to get staged up by this Hebrew. And so they end up coming to the soon-to-be bride. And they, and they get her, they hatch this plan to get her to find out the answer to the riddle so she would feed the information to them so that they could save face throughout the, the, the process of this. Verse 18, So the men of the city said to, said to him on the seventh day, so they've already gotten the answer, before the sun went down, they said, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? So, so they got the answer to the riddle, but they cheated. So Samson says to them, <laughs> I love this. He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, meaning if you hadn't messed with my woman, you would not have solved the riddle. Now notice, again, then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. He owes them some clothing. So he comes down to Eshkelon, which was the capital of the Philistines, and he kills 30 of their men. He takes their clothes. He returns and gives the changes of the clothes to those who had explained the riddle. So he makes good on his promise. His anger was aroused. He goes back to his father's house. 
We're told Samson's wife was then given to his companion, who was his best man at the wedding. So Samson ends up dipping out on the wedding a little early, and so there's a bride, and so the best man's like, I'll step in. That won't exactly play itself out very well in the next chapter. You see, Samson will later come to call again upon his wife. You know, getting a little lonely. He had returned to his father's house, but now he's wanting to come and knock some boots with his bride. But he finds out that his bride had been given to his best man. So Samson does what any rational man would do. He catches 300 foxes, because it was the time of the wheat harvest. And he ties to their tail torches. And he lights the torches, and he releases the foxes into the field. Again, what all of us would do in such a situation, faced with such a dynamic, mighty. Verse 9 of chapter 15. This doesn't play very well with the Philistines, so they go up to the encampment in Judah. They deplored themselves against Lehi, and the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We've come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he's done to us. We're told, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etham and said to Samson, Do you know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done? So he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, we have come to arrest you that we can deliver you to the hands of the Philistines. The children of Israel are like, we don't want any part of, of what's happening. But Samson said to them, swear to me that you won't kill me yourself. So they spoke and they said, no, we'll tie you securely. We'll deliver you into their hand, but we won't kill you. So they'll hand him over peaceably, but they're going to tie him. So they bound him, we're told, with new ropes. Probably smart. And they brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines were shouting against him. So get the scene in your mind. You've got a bound, you know, shackled Samson being led by the children of Israel to the Philistine encampment. They start shouting against him. And again, look at what's said. We're told the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire. And his bonds broke loose from his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Hand-to-hand combat with the jawbone of a donkey. Now Samson will ultimately kind of judge Israel, have these skirmishes with the Philistines. His ministry will last about 20 years. But there was always this grand mystery when you get to chapter 16. And our typical depictions of Samson, we often think of him like Fabio. Good-looking, flowing locks of hair, strong, to the point that like, okay, this guy has somehow, he's fast enough to catch 300 foxes and brazen enough to tie to their tails torches. And he's just killed a thousand men in hand-to-hand combat with a jawbone of a donkey. When you think about this guy, Samson, breaking free of shackles, you think of a, of a, of a tall, 
muscular, burly type of man. To the point that there would really be no grand mystery as to the source of his strength, because, well, you'd take one look at him, and it was clear. He's just bigger than everybody and stronger than everybody, and yet that wasn't quite the case. In fact, most of the, the felt board depictions of Samson have Samson quite, quite off, and we're not given a physical description of the man. So some of this is, is a bit of conjecture, but we can reason that Samson probably was the opposite of what we tend to think. That he wasn't big, he wasn't strong, he wasn't muscular, he wasn't burly. He was probably short, a little pudgy, not a lot of muscle. Like to the point that the great mystery during these years was the source of his strength. No one could figure it out. No one could make sense of it. People would stand against him and get slaughtered. Now, we've seen a bit of the source of his strength. In almost every instance that Samson steps out in a calling of God to act as the instrument of God, what happens? We're told over and over and over again, you saw it, I noted it, that the Spirit of the Lord would come mightily upon him and then he would step out and act. You get to chapter 16, and it's a little lengthy, but I, but I want to read it just to kind of wrap up a bit of the story. But it happened that Samson falls in love with a woman whose name was Delilah. Dun, dun, dun. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her, and they said, Entice him. Find out where his great strength lies. By what means we may overpower him that we may bind to afflict him. <laughs> In fact, every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So quite a bounty. <clears throat> if she can find out some, some clue, some insight, how is he able to, to do the things that he does? So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. Now, I mean, her intentions are pretty obvious, isn't it? Pretty clear. There's no mystery. Hey, yeah, what, what, uh, what can we use to bound you? Well, Samson said to her, if they, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, I will become weak. I'll be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried. She bound him with them. The men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to Samson, The Philistines are upon you! So he broke the bowstrings as a strand of, of yarn breaks when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. And we can assume that those men got their tails kicked. So Delilah comes again to Samson. Now, you, you would think he, he would be, it would be very clear what's happening. But Delilah comes and she says to Samson, you've mocked me and told me lies. Now tell me with what we may bound you. And so he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that's never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, they clearly haven't read the previous chapter because new ropes have been used before. But Delilah took new ropes, bound him with them, and said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. The men were lying in wait, staying in the room. 
but he broke them off his arms like a thread. Delilah comes to Samson a third time. You've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me with what we may bound you with. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of a loom. Well, that's the key. So she, she wove his hair tightly into the, the batten of the loom and said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the, and the web from the loom. And she says, how can you say, Samson, that I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me three times. You've not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him, a nagging wife, so that his soul was vexed to death, that he told her his heart. And he said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. Now understand that so much of the anointing of Samson, so much of the the work God did through Samson, not just manifesting from this outpouring, this unique manifestation of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon, but it was tethered to this original call, the Nazarite. That he was to not touch anything unclean. That he was not to drink. That he was not to shave his head. This very unique thing, which we'll look at in Leviticus. There's a whole chapter that kind of deals with the vow of the Nazarite. But within the story of Samson, at the great feast, he drank. He, he, he had the, you know, broke the first dynamic. He had wine, which was a no-no for a Nazarite. Additionally, when he killed the lion, he comes back and he finds honey in the carcass and he takes the honey out. Again, that would be unclean. We've seen that in Leviticus, touching a dead animal. Strike two. Now in talking with Delilah, Samson understands his strength comes from a supernatural manifestation of power from God. But he knows that in some way, the power is tethered to this kind of covenant that he has with the Lord based in this vow of the Nazarite. The third and final component is he's never shaved his head. So Delilah comes and she's crying a river. What's the source of your strength? Samson says, well, the locks. So Delilah saw that he was telling the truth. So she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines and she says, come once more. I'm sure they were a little hesitant. Samson's told me his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her, brought the money. She lured him to sleep on her knees and called for a man, had him shave the seven locks of his head. She began to torment him. His strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But, and this is probably one of the saddest sentences in all of Scripture, but Samson did not know that the Lord had departed from him. So the Philistines took him, no power, no strength. They put out his eyes. They brought him to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters. He became a grinder of, of, of grain in one of the prisons. However, and this is such an interesting phrase, the hair of his head began to grow again. 
after it had been shaven. Now, if you jump to verse 32, uh, 23, my bad. We read that the Philistines gather. They're going to have this great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, to rejoice. They said part of the, the, the glory of the celebration was that God, our God, has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. So when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, the one who multiplied our dead. So it happened when their hearts were merry that they said, call, bring Samson out that he may perform for us. The word perform is that they could mock him and taunt him. So they called Samson from the prison and they mocked him. They stationed him between the pillars. Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Again, he's blind. He can't see. And when the temple was full of men and women, the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching, taunting. Samson called to the Lord. He says, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray. Just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple and he braced himself against them, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all of his might and the temple fell on the Lord's and all of the people who were in it so that the dead that he killed at his death was more than he had killed in his life. In many ways, a bit of a redemption of Samson. An understanding of his error a bit of repentance of his ways, coming to terms with his destiny. He would die in the temple, but pleading with God just one last time for strength to fulfill his call to be a judge in Israel. Now, I bring up Samson because there's an interesting bit of, bit of lessons that we can gather about the calling of God, the anointing of God, the strength of God, the Spirit of God, and how all of these things blend together. And the reason that that's so interesting is when you get to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, and you get to the fourth verse in this bit of transition. Jesus has already died for our sins. He's already risen from the dead. There are 40 days after his resurrection to his ascension when he goes to be with the Father, to sit down at the right hand. 40 days of which Jesus appeared 10 times to his disciples and various other people where he teaches about the kingdom of God. Incredible things take place over these 40 days. But as it's all wrapping up, we're told in verse 4 of Acts 1 that they're assembled together. And Jesus commands them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, this is a bizarre development. Because Jesus has just gotten done telling them, instructing them, commanding them. Hey, I'm going to prepare a place. You, my church, ah, I want you to go into the nations. I want you to start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of Jesus. Jesus leaves them, these 120 or so people, this great commission 
It's not a suggestion. It's a commission. It's their marching orders. Don't just stay here with the knowledge of what I've done. But take that knowledge, take that work, take that transformation power out. And then with the next breath, Jesus says, but go to Jerusalem and just chill out. Like it's, There's this weird dichotomy. He gives them a great commission, a mission to go. And then with the next breath, he says, but you need to actually stay put and wait for the Holy Spirit. At this point, they, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. And then he says, but, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and into the ends of the earth. Now, what's amazing to me is you have a group of people that have walked with Jesus for three years. They've heard Jesus give sermon after sermon. This group of people was there to witness the crucifixion, recognize its importance in the moment of the resurrection. They'd seen the risen Lord. Jesus is in front of them. I mean, they had right then so many things at their disposal. So much knowledge, so much experience. And yet even in light of those things, Jesus knew they were worthless to fulfill the commission that he was giving them apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to explain what this empowering is, I've got to at least let you know what it isn't. When you're examining the interactions of the Holy Spirit with humanity, you'll find within Scripture three different Greek prepositions being used in conjuncture with the Holy Spirit and us. In John chapter 14, verse 17, Jesus said, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He, speaking of the Holy Spirit, dwells with you. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot down that this word with, this first preposition we find in relation to the Holy Spirit's interactions with humanity, the word with in the Greek is para. It literally means to come alongside of. And what this word describes is just the general function, purpose of the Holy Spirit in the lives of every human being that's ever lived on the planet, that he is with us. And for what purposes? Well, we've all experienced this, this para ministry. See, the Holy Spirit is with us, around us, alongside of us, doing something important. A, he's convicting us of, of sin. Have you ever felt convicted by doing something wrong? Something you knew you shouldn't? You felt a conviction. That right there is the Holy Spirit. And he's convicting you of sin for what purpose? So that I understand I need a Savior. I'm a mess up. I'm a screw up. I fall so short. I mess up so often. I need a remedy. So the Holy Spirit is with us, this para ministry, convicting us of sin, bringing us to the cross. Now the second preposition you'll find is again in the same verse there in John 14, verse 17. Jesus continues saying, for the Holy Spirit dwells with you, para, and will be, and that's in a future tense, in you. 
again, in the Greek, the, the, this word in, I-N, is E-N. And what it means is to come within. So the Holy Spirit is with us, but when we get to the cross and we accept what Jesus does on our behalf, there's a regeneration that takes place in our lives because this Holy Spirit that was convicting and leading now enters and begins to transform salvation, renewal, rebirth. Jesus says to this group of disciples, it will be. Now we know that what's happening in Acts 1 is not this. It's not their salvation. It's not their regeneration. Jesus isn't saying, you need to go to Jerusalem and wait so that you can be saved. No, not at all. In fact, in John 20, verse 22, after the resurrection, we're told that Jesus, in one of these instances where he meets with the disciples, we're told that he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's in, it's in my belief that it's in this moment in time. The Holy Spirit goes from being with them to now being in them. That it's in this moment they're saved, that they're regenerated, that they're transformed, that they're born again, that something has changed, a new constitution, a new identity, that they are new creations in Christ Jesus. Now in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says that you need to go, the same group of people who the Spirit has been with and is now in, He says to them, here's a great commission, but you need to go and wait for something else from the Holy Spirit. He says you need to go and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. It's a third preposition. This, this word upon, it's, it's epi, E-P-I. And it, it means to come over. It's very similar to what we see with Samson. Something that, that happens in a moment and a place in time. I have the Spirit with me. I have the Spirit in me. But there's a moment when the Spirit comes upon me and begins to overflow from me. You see, for the follower of Jesus... The first of these three interactions with the Holy Spirit ceases. I no longer need this, the Spirit with me, convicting me, because He's in me. And yet, this third, the coming upon, it seems to be continual and active. Like, there's only one moment in time the Spirit comes in you. You're born again. There's no need to be born again again. You've been born again. You either are or you aren't born again. But this upon, this epi interaction, it's continual. Let me give you an example. In Acts 2, we finally see the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit come upon believers. Sound of a rushing wind, tongues of fire. But then what's fascinating is in Acts 4, verse 8, we're told that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and again, this is an active tense, refilled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Steps out in faith. And then in Acts 4, verse 31, we're told, when they had prayed, the whole place where they were assembled together was shaken. Same group of people. They were all filled again with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. It seems, from what Jesus is saying, that this third ministry of the Holy Spirit, something that happens in the life of a believer, and then happens in the life of a believer, and happens again in the life of a believer, and continues to happen 
and the life of a believer. Similar to the way that we see with Samson. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they would be one, baptized with the Holy Spirit, and two, receive power to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I'm running out of time. But this word power, it's the word dunamis. It's the word we get dynamite from. You see, here we are at the change of a year. Crazy to think. It's 2020, isn't it? 2020. The roaring 20s. And yet something weird happens at the changing of, of, of the calendar. We get in our minds this very introspective thing. Like we begin to evaluate the previous year and make some determinations for the coming year. We look back on the highs and the lows of 2019 and then we make some resolves to do better, to be better. Resolutions is where we get this. And it's a weird thing. I mean, it's just the move from one day to the next. It's just another day. There's nothing magical, or, or, but somehow, and just the way our culture has it established, when the calendar changes over, we get introspective, and we start thinking about what needs to change in our lives. I know I do. You think back to 2019, and it's like, man, I need to resolve to be healthier. Don't we? Or to be more organized. Or you take an evaluation of your spiritual life. And it's like, you know what? If I really think about it, like I, I think in my mind I'm committed to church. But you know, I show up probably like once or twice a month. How committed really am I? As I've evaluated the last year, I like to call myself a Christian, but what in my life demonstrates that I'm a Christian? Like we start to think back and we start to evaluate things and then we make resolves. Well, I'm going to do better. There's a lot of I involved with all of this process, and there's a lot of personal resolve with a lot of these things. The fascinating idea about what happens in Acts chapter 1, in light of this cool story of Samson, is that left to your strength, Jesus knew you had no power at all to do about anything. Like the idea of you'll have power to be witnesses of me, the idea is that to, to live a life that's all in. The word is martyr. It's the word we find witness. And we think of a martyr as someone who dies. A martyr is someone already dead. And their death just validates it. The idea of being a witness to Jesus is that my life has been given over. Like the spiritual life, your spiritual life, there is not one component to it that you can do on your own. In fact, maybe 29 was marked by more failure than successes because you tried to on your own. You see, you need the Holy Spirit. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever that is that God has been laying on your heart, whatever the resolve is, man, this has to change. Even if it's simple things. My wife and I were talking about it. Just getting more organized with the kids. Yeah, we, we had the same resolution last year. And we were talking, she was like, well, how do I depend on the Holy Spirit for just being organized? You just wake up every morning and you say, Lord, I can't, I can't represent you in my flesh. I can't be you to my kids in myself. 
I need something beyond me. I need a power that transcends me. I need desperately, more than anything else, your Holy Spirit to come upon me. And yeah, there are examples of this in the Scriptures where this upon baptism of the Holy Spirit gets kind of crazy. Where we see crazy things kind of immediately happen. I think it looks a little bit more like Samson. There's no tongues of fire. There was nothing mystical or even magical. There was nothing that anyone saw visually when Samson stepped out and the power of God. To the point that everyone's taking a step back like, how, like what's, what's the secret? You know, people should be saying the same thing of your life. What is, their kids are just as frustrating as mine. But how does she walk with tenderness? How is she meek? How does she love those rugrats when I want to strangle them? I know she wants to strangle them. How does she resist? What's the secret? Where's the power? Man, that guy. I know his wife got diagnosed with cancer. I know he's going through hell. I know he's struggling. But where, how does he have such grace? How does he have such faith? Where is it coming from? Because I don't have it. There is nothing that you can do in the spiritual realm apart from the power of of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. It's why when we come to the table and partake of communion, it's why we consume it. It's why we eat of it. This idea of like just the dependency on the power of God and the person of God and the Spirit of God for everything. If you enter this year a little frustrated from the previous one, there's always things, areas where we need to grow. But if you think you can do them, only one of two things happens. Well, three things. One, you, you totally fail and make, make the resolution next year. As a matter of fact, I've kind of skipped that. I'm going to lose weight in 2021. One, you fail, and then you feel terrible about it. It's why people get hammered on New Year's Eve. You look back on the year, and you're like, man, that was a disaster. You failed. So if you step out and you try to do it on your own, you'll, you'll, you will fail. Or, two, you'll succeed. And then you know what happens? You're like, I did it. And God's like, yeah, pride's a problem. Yay, you succeeded. And now you're more like Satan. Because it was pride. I did it. Man, I read through my Bible all year. I knuckled down. The help of that app. Okay. You closer to God, or you just filled with pride that you did something? 
And again, there are all kinds of examples. So, so one, you fail and you feel terrible about it. Two, you succeed and you're more like Satan. Or three, you say, I want to abide in the vine and I want to walk in the Spirit. And I want, I want, I want my life to be fueled and to be energized by something that transcends me. Because I'm kind of sick of me. And if whatever it is this year, you walk in the Spirit and you seek to be empowered by the Spirit, like Samson, the Spirit of the Lord will come mightily upon you. Don't we need that? Don't we want that? The way we're going to close is, is very simple. And I, don't, I don't typically do responses, that type of thing. It's, 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 it's weird, but I'm, I'm feeling led to do it. Today's different as it is. But I want, I want everyone to close your eyes. And if you this morning, Jesus says, I will withhold no good thing from my kids. It's a promise. And this morning, if you want to start off this year saying, Lord, I just need more of you, and I need your Holy Spirit to come upon me. If that's, if that's you, I'm just going to ask that you'd stand right where you are, and I'm going to pray for all of us. If you would like...